Well, welcome again to City Life this Saturday evening. It's good to have you. If you're visiting or this is maybe just one random time you come, you chose a good weekend because we're starting a new series tonight calling it Rethink Church. Uh, so uh, some things we're rethinking, some things stay the same. Like every Saturday since we launched January 2016, I've come up with one of these, the Bible, because we love the Bible. And I tell you guys, pull out a Bible, pull out your U version, find a Bible in the pew, because I want you to know that what we preach here, it's not something I made up. It's not something we're just winging, but this is the, the truth of God. And I pray every week that I'd rightly divide it and that we would be able to receive it in a way that bears fruit. But just to get us thinking tonight, I know that God doesn't just speak on weekends through his word. I know that as you guys are in devotionals or you guys maybe podcast or even just listen to worship music that comes from scripture, maybe God uses scripture, a verse, a passage to carry you through a season. Or maybe you're one of those people that, that has a life verse. But what is a verse in your life that God has used in you? Romans 8.28, you know it by heart? Awesome. Anybody else? I won't make you all recite them. <laughs> no, you could, you could. <laughs> Psalms 91 as a whole, right? Awesome chapter. Oh, Team Smith's chapter. Nice. Isaiah 54. Awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Romans 8.1. That's awesome. Yep. Anybody else? Shared it last week, right? Yep. That's awesome. That's a good one. Husband got hype off that one. <laughs> now he's going to go see you. <laughs> that was so good. He's got to sit by you now. <laughs> But I know for myself, when I was a new believer, a verse that I memorized, that I took to heart, that really was transformational for me when I became a new believer was Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, where Paul writes, and he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So when I started following Christ, I was a senior at William Mary. I was an English and art major. So as an English major, I was like, okay, the word renewing is in the progressive tense. It's not a one-time event, but it is a, a process, a, 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 something we progress through. And the amplified version, it, it takes this literally. In the amplified version of this verse, it says, be transformed and progressively changed by the renewing of your mind. Now, we renew the way we think. We re renew our perspectives. And we know the truth doesn't change. But how many of you guys know as you go through seasons in life, you, you enter into new seasons, new times in life, different verses can speak to us in a new way. Worship songs can speak to us in a new way. You can reread a book of the Bible and it speaks to you in a new way. There's just new paradigms, new perspectives that we find. Because definitions matter. Meanings matter. When I say one thing, it helps if you know what I mean when I say it. So Steph and I, we were talking last night, we realized this year we'll, we'll have our seven-year anniversary. We've been married for seven years. So in those seven years, I've learned when she says some things, what I think she would have meant when we first got married. It's like, no, that's not really 
what she means. So let me, let me explain what I'm saying. Like, if she says, do whatever you want at the end of a conversation, somebody newly married, me as a, a fresh husband, would be like, okay, I can do whatever I want. If you're not taking notes, man, you need to take notes, right? That doesn't mean do whatever you want. It means, look, you should know already whether or not I'm cool with what we're talking about. Most likely, I'm not cool with that, and if you do it, we'll have beef. <laughs> if my wife would say, I'm almost ready. As a newly married husband, I'm like, all right, I'm going to get my shoes on, I'm going to start the car, I'll go sit in the car, and I'll wait. No. I need to rethink that, reframe that as I, I was married to it longer. It could be 10 minutes. It could be an hour. I'm not going to bother. I'm going to let her do her. I'm going to find something to do. And when she's ready, she'll be ready. Fine. <laughs> she's fine. She said fine. She's fine. What she, she really means is we're going to return to this at a later time, and you need to have an apology drafted for me, right? I'm glad she's not in here for any of this. <laughs> she's off dropping Raj off. Uh, what did you say? Say what I just said. She asked me to repeat it, right? Double down. Nah. What did you say? It's like a get out of jail free card. You have about 10 seconds to, again, apologize or frame your apology before you move forward. All right? This is the kind of stuff we go over at base camp, just as we talk about communication. <laughs> Anthony can help you out. But definitions matter. What we say, it, it, it matters that we understand the meaning of what we're talking about. Now, to look at this passage, when some people hear worship, they might think of something different than somebody else. Like some people hear the word worship and their mind goes to a one-hour service on the weekend, 30 minutes of singing, or, or, or a band and a worship leader and some songs, and that's worship. Or maybe that also includes the genre of music on iTunes of songs that you might do in a worship set. And when they hear somebody mention worship or when they read about worship in the Bible, that's what they picture. But if you read your word and you keep digging, you realize worship is way bigger than that. You read Romans 12 in the message version, it says worship is your offering up of your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life. Every day, everything you do, it's worship. We were created to worship. We'll spend our lives proclaiming the worth of things. And some people would say, well, I'm not religious, so no, I don't really worship. But no, we were all created to worship. What you value what you place on the throne of your life is what you worship. And you can follow the trail of your affection and energy, or you can follow the trail of your focus and finances, and you'll find what it is you worship. And what's powerful, because when your idea of worship is no longer compartmentalized to a few songs on a weekend, and you realize it's your entire life, your whole life is transformed. Rethinking worship in this way, your whole life can be transformed. So that's just one of what we call 12 pathways here at City Life. 12 pathways, it's what we refer to them as, but they're, they're 12 disciplines. I believe if you're following Christ, you will walk these 12 pathways. And as you walk these 12 pathways, God will grow the character and virtue in you that he desires. And we see the, the word wants, that God wants to bring forth from us. There's a book out on the information center that Pastor Fred from the Newport News Campus recently wrote about this. If you're a visitor, you got a next step card filled out, you've got uh, the thing on your phone, you texted that in, go grab one on the way out, it's free. Otherwise, you can check out letspraxis.com where it goes over these disciplines. But this is what they are. The 12 disciplines we champion here. Prayer, worship, scripture, fasting, reaching, gathering, accountability, relationship, serving, resting, 
generosity, and stewardship. Again, these are 12 disciplines. If you're following Christ, these are, these are 12 paths you'll walk. And when somebody comes to me, like, I feel dry, I feel distant, I'm like, well, how, how are the 12 pathways operating in your life? But what do we mean when we say worship? Again, we just talked about that. What do we picture when we talk about prayer? What comes to mind when we mention stewardship? What kind of actions make up generosity? You could ask questions about each one of these pathways. And if we pigeonhole our perspective of these pathways, we can miss their purpose. We can miss out on the fruit that God wants to bring forth in our lives. It's like the, the Sermon on the Mount. We see Jesus, he takes the Ten Commandments. He doesn't change them. But he says, hey, there's this predominant perspective of these commandments, the, the ways we view them. But he's saying, hey, we need to rethink them, their implications, how they, they reach into your life and the impact they have on your every day. Because, again, the, the truth doesn't change, but sometimes we need to reframe the way we think about it. Now, again, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he said, hey, we need to take a fresh look. Now, I'm not Jesus, <laughs> but we have Jesus' word and we have God's word. And my prayer for this series is that as we dig into his word, that our minds will continue to be renewed and that we'll be both transformed and progressively changed, as it says in the Amplified Version. Amen? So tonight, I want to look at the last one on that list. I want to look at stewardship, rethinking stewardship. Now, stewardship, we're going to give it a definition, a simple definition to start, a definition of terms. It's being responsible with resources given to you that belong to somebody else. Our culture readily gets ownership, <laughs> me and mine, taking care of my own. And we understand things like borrowing and leasing, but stewardship is often learned. And I can remember growing up as a kid, I was one of four kids. How many of you guys had four or more kids in your home? I was going to say, they got to be somewhere, right? <laughs> so I had two sisters and a brother. Stewardship for me as a kid, like my first concept of being a good steward was if I'm going to use my brother or sister's toy or bike, then I'm not going to break it and then give it back, right? If I'm going to be a good steward of something my friend lends to me, then I'm going to treat it like it's mine and I'm going to give it back in just as good a condition as when I got it. That to me as a little kid is what stewardship was. Then I started growing up, right, become a teenager, young adult, got an income, finances. My parents raised me in the church. So stewardship in, in that season was, hey, what am I doing with my finances? And my lesson in that season was, was priority percentage giving to the local church. And maybe some of you just rolled your eyes thinking I'm about to launch into a sermon on, on money. And maybe some of you guys patted yourself on the back thinking, well, I got that 10% thing down. But stewardship, yes, it's that, but it's so much more. Like, turn 30, become a father, and I realized I've got to steward my body. Otherwise, things could get ugly, right? Literally. I've got to fight hashtag dad bod, right? My lesson in that. The bar I've set is I don't want to do anything like, all right, pause. Like my whole life, ever since I've started following Christ, my dream is to come before God at the end of my life, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Like that's my heart's cry. I want to hear that when I see God. What I don't want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. But if you would have stewarded your body, I had five more years, 10 more years, 15 more years of faithful service for you. If you just could have stewarded your body, I, I had that for you, where you would have built my kingdom and, and had more work. So things are permissible that aren't beneficial. So for me, it's like, is this thing going to take years off my life? And I ain't going to do it, right? Or if, if exercising can lengthen my life, I'm going to do it. Just stewarding my body in a way where I know when I see God, he's not going to say, you knocked 10 years off your life because you were just a bad steward with your body, right? 
I hear people say all the time, we only live once. Well, then why do I want to make that life shorter, right? <laughs> I want to be able to serve God in everything he has for me. And, and I wouldn't say that any of those perspectives on stewardship were wrong, but each one of them is incomplete. Stewardship is much more comprehensive than that. We talk about meanings and context and definitions, and one of the ways that God would change the ways that people would think in Scripture is by giving them a name change, changing their name. You're no longer Simon, a reed, and grass blown about by the wind. You're Peter. You're a rock. You're a foundation. You're no longer Jacob, a deceiver who grasps things. You're Israel. You wrestle with God. You, you engage with God. And we had an opportunity, Steph and I, in adopting Raj to change his name. We actually got those papers back yesterday in the mail. His, his name is now officially Titus Shivraj White. So we had known for a long time that if we had a son, we wanted to name him Titus. We just liked that name. It's meaningful to us. And as we went through infertility and this arduous adoption process, a, a verse that carried a lot of meaning, you talk about life verses. It's in Corinthians where it says, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us with the coming of Titus. We came across that verse in the middle of our adoption process, and it was just like wind in our sails. But then we also found out when we got his referral that his, his mom had named him Shivraj, and that was meaningful to us. So we were going to name him Titus Lee White because Lee's in our family, but we're like, no, if, her, if his mom named him that, then, then we'll keep it. Besides, Raj is just a, a dope nickname. Shivraj, it, it literally means Lord Shiva. Sounds like a Sith Lord from like Star Wars or something. Like, but we call him Raj. It means ruler. It means one who leads. And I love calling him that, and I love thinking that one day I'm going to explain to him what that means and why I enjoy calling him that. Because it's, it's not just something I'll call him, you know, ruler and, and, and somebody who leads, not just to boost his self-esteem or, or give him a big head or stroke his ego, but because it's a reminder that God calls him, as he calls all, and each one of our lives to stewardship. And where do I get it from? Well, first and foremost, we see it at the beginning of our Bible. We see it in Genesis. We see it in the creation narrative in verses 1, 26, and then 2, 15 especially. But before we even get there, we see two facts that inform our stewardship. One is that God is king of creation, that before creation happened, God was there. The world doesn't revolve around us. The world revolves around God. He created all things, and therefore he owns all things. All ownership and authority belongs to God. So any authority that we have in this life is derived authority given by God. And we see him do just that in Genesis. Genesis 1.26, it talks about how he made man and woman in his image, and then it says, let them have dominion over creation. And then in Genesis 2.15, it talks about how he placed them in the garden to work it and keep it. We see that God isn't only just king of creation, but he gives dominion to stewards. He establishes stewards. In Genesis, we see the ultimate authority delegating authority to man and woman. It's what uh, what you might have heard as the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate is this idea defined as God has made everything. Everything is the Lord's, but God has declared that you and I, made in his image, fill, subdue, and rule creation as stewards. So what does that mean in plain English? <laughs> it means you own nothing. It's all on loan. God created the earth you live in. God created the air you breathe. God created the body you inhabit. God created your very soul. He created all of it. And it's all a gift. It's a gift you've been given to justly rule and steward. And see, these gifts we bring, or the gifts we're given, they bring us joy. I love my life. I love my wife. I love my son. I love this church. These gifts we're given, they also bring responsibility. 
You see within verses of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.26 and Genesis 2.15, you see Adam abdicates his role and he abdicates his responsibility. He's passive when Eve eats from the tree. And then when God confronts him, he says, well, it's the woman you gave me, right? She was saying stuff. I didn't understand what she meant when she said, no, she didn't say all that. But God doesn't play that. With his blessings comes the responsibility to steward them well. We're not victims. He doesn't give us to a victim mentality. We're given dominion, rule, responsibility, and Adam tapped out of these things. The consequences of his decision and the entrance of sin into creation affected everything. But we see, and I want to look at Romans 5, verses 15 through 17. Romans 5, verses 15 through 17. It's talking about Adam, and it's talking about Jesus. And Paul is writing, and he says, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man, speaking of Adam's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? See, where Adam was given dominion and failed and abdicated that rule and and stumbled and fell due to sin, one man, Jesus, gives grace and righteousness. I think we're familiar with that in the church. He gives us grace. He gives us the gift of righteousness, but he also gives us this ability to reign. And our role in stewardship, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. When Paul was writing Romans, in Romans 10, it talks about how if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that, that God raised him from the dead, that that's how uh, you step into faith, step into this grace, step into this righteousness. And this phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord, was significant. Because it's, it's what people would say to each other to identify themselves as Christians. But when you look at the very word Lord in Jesus Christ as Lord, it speaks to an owner, a master, one who has servants and slaves. And in that, we declare that our relationship to Christ is one of slave to master. I own nothing. It's all his. See, Paul would explain in this letter that, hey, you're either slaves to sin or Christ in life. It's one or the other. Like the same way you're created to worship, you're created to serve. It's either going to be sin and your flesh, or it's going to be Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God when you serve Jesus is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a powerful idea. It's a powerful concept. But again, when God gives us these blessings, we're to steward them. When God gives us freedom, he calls us to steward that freedom. How? By leading ourselves, ruling our flesh, walking in that freedom. This idea that big blessings, they come with big responsibilities. Again, freedom, God gives it to us, but we have the responsibility to, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, through the wisdom he gives us, walk in that freedom. We can just as easily make decisions in that freedom that put us right back in bondage. But he calls us to steward that freedom. Big blessings come with big responsibilities. For instance, Steph and I have Raj now. He's awesome. He's like God's grace to us. In the flesh, like I look at him and it's just God's goodness. That good, good father we saying, he's perfect in all of his ways through everything we've got Raj. It's God's grace with a cute face. That's, that's Raj in our house. But he's literally a blessing that we're called the stewards as, as parents. For every parent, whether you adopt it or not, your kids aren't your own. They're, they're God's. They're given to you so that you can raise them. They're given to you so that you have the honor and privilege of raising them up as men and women. And yet with Raj, this huge blessing there are 100 new responsibilities, right? But Steph and I, 
we, we won't let each other like whine or, or lament about these responsibilities. We remind each other, no, this kid is a blessing. The responsibility is a part of the territory. God blesses us, and then he expects us to steward that blessing. Some of us need to stop lamenting the responsibility and begin to count our blessings again. Like we pray for a platform, we get the platform, and then we stress about the weight of that position we've been put in. We get the blessing we prayed for, and then we, we stress about or complain about the responsibilities that are in that. But we need to steward what God has given us with joy. The family I've got, including the, the little boy that hardly sleeps, right, it's still a huge blessing. <laughs> the, the, the home with the, none of this is true for me, thank goodness, leaking roof, right, it's still a blessing. The job you have with, with the, the cranky boss, still a blessing. Again, not speaking to myself, Fred podcast this, talking about <laughs> hypotheticals. But with these huge blessings, each of these is, is a blessing come responsibilities. But these big responsibilities in life are often indicative of the fact that we've received big blessings. So don't lament the responsibility. Rejoice in the blessing. You know, rethink it. With God's blessings comes the call to steward these blessings. To push against the responsibility is to push against the pathway of stewardship. Stewardship means we recognize these things, all things, as the gift they are from God, and we manage them to God's glory. But know this, where, where God blesses richly, and man, everybody in this room in different ways, we've been richly blessed. He expects much in return. We see it vividly in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Now, talents, it's talking about this large amount of money. And this man leaves and he gives his servants three different amounts of talents. And it's the one that does nothing to steward that amount, just sits on it where he's judged harshly. You know, in our lives, our finances, our family, our home, our health, our church, we'll be judged for our stewardship. We'll be judged for that. And in the book of Judges, there's a verse, we hit on it a couple months ago, where it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did as he saw fit. Israel had rejected the dominion that God had given them and stewardship that God had given them. They ignored God's laws, ignored his position as king, but it was indicative also of what was coming. They, they needed a king. You know, it wasn't a surprise that Israel received a king in the book of 1 Samuel. It wasn't a surprise that that, that happened. If you look all the way back in Genesis where he's first talking to Abraham, he said, hey, kings are going to come from your line. In Deuteronomy, he predicts that, hey, you guys are going to reject me and you're going to take on a king. So it's in the cards, but even in 1 Samuel, we see the Israelites impatiently pushing the issue, saying, hey, we're so unique right now, but, but we want a king so we can be like the nations around us. God wanted them to be unique, but they're like, hey, we want a king too. And God, in his graciousness, he gives them a king, but he gives us this setup that's unique, where, yes, it's by name a king, but really it looks like a steward. And when I read about this, because I'm a geek, I think about the stewards of Gondor from Lord of the Rings, right? Y'all know I read that book last summer because every week it was like a quote from Gimli or Aragorn or somebody. But the stewards in Lord of the Rings, they're stewards, right? <laughs> the king of their country, Gondor, he left to fight and he left no heir behind. He didn't return. So the stewards, they reigned in his place. They didn't sit on the, the great throne. They sat on this black throne underneath the other throne, right? They weren't king, but they, they had dominion. They were to charge with defense of the city. They were stewards. They reigned and ruled on behalf of the king without being kings themselves. 
And after 25 generations of this, eventually their perspective of stewardship starts to shift and shift and they start to get impatient. And there's a quote where he says, how many hundreds of years needs it to make a steward a king if a king returns not? Now, if you know the trilogy, you know the last book is called The Return of the King. The king comes back. And in the same way, we serve a king that's going to return one day. And we're called to stewardship. No matter how many generations passed, pass, we're, continue, we're to continue to do it. And if we don't remember that there's a king that's going to come back, so often we can begin to drift from stewardship to setting ourselves up as king in the center of it all. But Christ the king is coming back. And we'll be judged and held accountable for our blessings and how we stewarded them. Our time, our talents, our treasures, our, our freedom, and our rule and reign that we're given. There's a parable of the servant who's in charge of his master's household. It's in Luke 12. And he's basically a steward. He's like the stewards of Gondor. He's keeping the seat warm in his Lord's absence, and he's in charge of his estate. And he's doing a good job, but then there's this key verse. It's in Luke 12, verse 45. He says, my master is delaying his coming. And from this, you begin to see a turn for the worst in his stewardship. He gives himself to drunkenness. He beats the other servants because in his mind he's thinking, maybe he won't come back. Maybe I can make this about me. And it's telling that this parable of the servant in Luke 12, it comes right after a warning to be mindful that Jesus Christ was going to come back. He's creator. He's king. We're called to be stewards and serve till his return. And patience and perseverance, as we see in these illustrations, it's key to stewardship. But also key is, is what I'll call the, the pyramid of stewardship and the pledge of stewardship. So you're probably familiar with the ideas of patience and perseverance, but let me explain the, the pyramid. The pyramid of stewardship uh, is set up in the Old Testament. Again, you look at God as he establishes uh, this kingdom for the Israelites. God graciously grants their request. But he wants his people to be unique among other nations. And he sets up this unique system for the king. And it simply looks like this. God, prophet, and king. The Israelite kingship, it was created to function in such a way that the king had to answer to a higher authority. The earthly king would submit to God's reign and rule. And standing beside every Israelite king was to be a prophet speaking God's word to each situation. Ensuring that these kings ruled on God's behalf. And as we read accounts of each king in the Bible, the degree to which each king obeyed or rejected the prophetic direction is the determining factor in how the Bible would evaluate his reign. So the question the Bible would look at is this. How did this ruler steward the throne that was entrusted to him by God the king directed by his prophet? You know, our, our stewardship will be judged in a similar way. We don't have a prophet standing beside us, but we have the very word of God. These Israelites, they might not have had a copy of the Bible. Some of us have like six to a dozen different translations littered around. We have the word of God. Our measure of stewardship will be the measure that we heed God's direction through the Bible and other wisdom and act accordingly. You know, Saul was the first king in the Israelite kingdom in the Old Testament. He had Samuel as a prophetic voice. And we see Saul fail twice in his role that God had established. First, he wrongfully plays the role of God's prophet. Happens in 1 Samuel 13. He's waiting for Samuel to come out and, and blesses his men before they go out into battle, and he gets impatient. After seven days, Saul, Samuel's still not there, and the men are getting impatient. They're getting fearful, and he's like, all right, well, I'll wing it. I'll do this sacrifice myself. He gives this burnt offering that wasn't his to, to make. It was for the, the prophet and priest, and he disobeyed the authority above him. And Saul's excuse is, is word for word. You didn't come at this set time. 
He says, the men were scrambling. I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Like Adam in Genesis, we see him say, well, it's not, it's not really my fault, right? I, I did what I had to do as if to abdicate this, this responsibility he had to be a steward and to obey. And that's the strike one against his reign and rule. His second failing takes it a step further because first he plays the role of prophet, and in the second one we see he's playing the role of God the king. We see a glimpse of Saul's heart in 1 Samuel 14.35 and then 15.12. In 1435, it says, Saul built an altar to the Lord, the first one he had ever built. Just verses after that, it says that Saul went to Carmel and set up a monument to himself. You know, in life, there's a very thin line between thy kingdom come and my kingdom come. What we do with our time, our treasures, and our talents to either build our kingdom or God's kingdom. But we are who we are by the grace of God. And we should do what we do for the glory of God. To do it for ourselves. To do it as we please is to fail as a steward. Samuel would speak to Saul and rebuke him with what becomes a key verse in the whole Bible. Jesus quotes it himself. It's where Samuel says, obedience is greater than sacrifice. Because the idea is God can't be bought off with gifts or sacrifices because you can't truly give him anything. Everything is his. Everything that we have has been a gift from him. It's like sixpence, none the richer. It's not just a band that wrote the song Kiss Me. It's an illustration by C.S. Lewis where he says there's a child and he he asks his father for sixpence so that he can give his father a gift. Now, when the the father gets that gift, he's no richer than he was before because he gave the child the money to give him the gift. In the same way, we, we can't buy off God. God simply wants our love. It says in 1 John 5, 3, to love God is to obey his commandments, to respect the pyramid of stewardship and recognize that everything is a blessing and we use who we are, what he's given us to glorify him. It's the pyramid of stewardship. Secondly, and as we wind up, is the pledge. See, after King Saul came King David. Totally different mindset David had than Saul. We see in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 14, there's just a portion of it up on the screen, but I'm going to read the whole thing. 1 Chronicles 29. Verses 10 through 14, it says, Then David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly. O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, may you be praised forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in heaven and on earth is yours, O Lord. And this is your kingdom. This is the king saying this. This is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone, for you rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand, and at your discretion, people are made great and given strength. Oh, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you, and we give you only what you first gave us. And if you read David's writings in Psalms, you realize he wasn't just saying this because it was the right thing to say in the moment. He would say in Psalm 24:1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It echoes what he says here. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, and this is your kingdom. Where did David get this faith? Where did he get this perspective of stewardship? Well, Psalm 101, many uh, commentators, theologians believe he wrote this early in his reign as king, and it's kind of like his pledge to steward the kingdom well. But it wasn't just about the kingdom, and I I love it. We're going to look at it. I'm going to read it, but I love that it starts with praise. If everything is a gift, just as he said in 1 Chronicles 29, where he started with praise and he praised the Lord, then, man, how much reason do we have to praise God? 
that he's a good father, and every good gift comes from his, him, as it says in James. But I'm going to read Psalm 101. I'm trying to memorize it, but if I try to read it right now or recite it, I'll probably butcher it. So it says, I will sing of your love and justice, Lord. I will praise you with songs. I will be careful to leave, live a blameless life. When will you come to help me? I will lead a life of integrity in my own home. I will refuse to look at anything vile and vulgar. I hate all who deal crookedly. I will have nothing to do with them. I will reject perverse ideas and stay away from every evil. I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors. I will not endure conceit and pride. I will search for faithful people to be my companions. Only those who are above reproach will be allowed to serve me. I will not allow deceivers to serve in my house, and liars will not stay in my presence. Then I love this because it sounds like a superhero's motto. My daily task will be to ferret out the wicked and free the city of the Lord from their grip. <laughs> so we see it's like this is David's pledge to rule and steward well. We realize as we read this, man, stewardship starts with me. In verse 2, we, we see he, he wants to steward his home. He wants to lead a blameless life and in his own home to live a life of integrity. Men especially, in verse 3, he talks about stewarding his eyes. Not to look at anything vile or vulgar. Verse 4, he talks about stewarding his very thoughts, stewarding his mind, rejecting perverse ideas. In verse 4, we see, man, it extends to our relationships, our circle of friends, stewarding who those people are that speak into our lives. It extends to everywhere God has given us influence. Stewardship isn't just about money, although it is. Stewardship isn't just about our body, although it is. Stewardship isn't just about our home and the blessings we've received, although it is. If that's all it's been about to you, then it's time to rethink stewardship. Because stewardship is about everything we have. It's about everything we do. That's why I'm starting with stewardship. Stewardship means being responsible with every resource we're given by another. Again, that was the definition we started with. True stewards recognize that all we have is a blessing from God. Therefore, we use all our time, talents, and treasures to glorify him. We don't lament or try to abdicate the responsibility to steward and rule over these things. No, we rejoice in the gifts of God's grace. Everything we have is a gift of God's grace. To compartmentalize our life and give God one thing and not another. To give him our finances but not our relationships. Our relationships but not our health. Our health but not our habits. It's to compartmentalize our rule in such a way as to reject our call as stewards. To reject stewardship. And it's dangerous we got to rethink stewardship because partial stewardship is dangerous. Compartmentalizing our faith in this way is dangerous. I was talking to Greg Reed after service last week. He shared this. It was from one of his devotionals. It's by Nikki Gumbel. So it was, I got home. I Googled it. I found it. But thank you, Greg. If all you do is show up at church and bounce, man, talk to some people afterwards. There's a wealth of wisdom. But it's called the Titanic problem. Because when the Titanic set sail in 1912, it was declared to be unsinkable because it was constructed using a new technology. The ship's hull was divided into 16 watertight compartments. Up to four of these compartments could be damaged or even flooded, and still the ship would float, or so they thought. Tragically, the Titanic sank on the 15th of April, 1912 at 2.20 a.m. 1,513 people lost their lives. At the time, it was thought that five of its watertight compartments had been ruptured in a collision with an iceberg. However, on the 1st of September, 1985, when the wreck of the Titanic was found lying upright on the ocean floor, there was no sign of the long gash previously thought to have been ripped in the ship's hole. What they discovered was that damage to one compartment affected all the rest. Many people make the Titanic mistake 
They think that they can divide their lives into different compartments and that what they do in one will not affect the rest. Come on, God doesn't ask us to steward everything, everything that he's given us by grace because he's some greedy God or, or because he, he wants it for himself. He wants it because, man, it saves us. By his grace, when we steward things according to his rule and his law, man, it helps us. It gives us life. But again, in this very statement, Jesus Christ is Lord. This passage and this statement that the early church would say, inherent in that is the fact that, hey, God is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. That word Lord means, hey, he's either Lord of everything or he's not Lord at all. We own nothing. We steward everything. Or we're off in our perspective, and we need to rethink stewardship. Stewardship comes from the recognition that all I have is God's. Therefore, I surrender all, and I steward all because he blesses me with that perspective. But if I could have the worship team come up, I want to get ready to close. My favorite character in The Lord of the Rings, as I was rereading it last summer, is Faramir. He's the son of the man who was ruling Gondor, but unlike his father, he wasn't overcome with lust for the ring. He wasn't overcome with lust for the throne. And when the king eventually comes back, he's the one that's ruling over Gondor. And he doesn't put up a fight, doesn't, doesn't fight him for the throne. He gives this speech, and then he, he leads the people in this chant, Behold the king. This chorus that they, they said, Behold the king. Man, I pray that my life lived well through stewardship will lead that chorus. What I have, I have by the grace of God. May I steward it to the glory of God. May my stewardship be a testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. May my life say, behold Jesus, behold the Lord, behold the King. But Psalm 101 is telling. Verse 2 is telling. As I memorize it, I always pause and think about it. He says, I will be careful to live a blameless life. When will you come to help me? Because, man, if we're going to do a good job of stewardship... We're going to lead a quote-unquote blameless life. It's not going to be in our own strength. So thank goodness, as every king had a prophet next to him, we've got the word of God. We've got the Holy Spirit. Come on, God has put us in a community, a church, so that we can walk in wisdom. It's only through Christ, as it says in Romans, that we reign. And it's only through his grace, only through the leading of the Holy Spirit and the surrounding of his church that we do it well. So God, tonight as we close, I just ask, as David asked in Psalm 101, help us. Help us, God. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your word, your truth, Lord God, so that we can be good stewards over everything. Give us the perspective of David, who realized everything that I might consider my kingdom, it's really yours. And God, we might cling to this, cling to that, Lord God, but give us hearts that say, I surrender all because I realize all is a gift. But God, I pray, God, that through your word, through even this series as we talk about prayer and worship and scripture and, and all these different areas, accountability, relationship, I pray that it would inform our stewardship, give us wisdom to make the right decisions, to rule justly over the things that you've given us, our families. God, those things we hit our knees for, pray for, fight for, Lord God. Our wives, our kids, our homes. God, I know so many people in this place desire to be good stewards. God, I ask on behalf of all of us, I intercede, help us. Help us, God. We want to live blameless lives. Be, be stewards that you look upon after we die and you say, good job. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful steward. But God, we can't do it without your help. God, we ask, God, as we close in worship, 
to God, fill us again. Renew our perspective. Help us to rethink and shift paradigms where they need to be shifted, Lord God, so we can line up with your word and we can see the fruit of the pathway of stewardship in our lives, Lord God. And God, I pray that if there's anybody here who's never said Jesus Christ is Lord, who's never said that all I have, I surrender to him, God, that tonight would be the night, God, that they make that step. But God, we, we step into worship now and we praise you. God, we thank you. We recognize that everything is a gift of grace from salvation to, to the, the person we're sitting next to, to the home we drive home to, Lord God. Help us to steward it well in the name of Jesus. But let's stand, let's worship, and let's close in worship.